And sometimes you show reverence to God by eating, like fasting, feasting. Sometimes you show reverence to God by being really sober, really, really serious. But other times you show reverence to God with gladness, with joy, with laughter, with happiness. You guys like Johnny Cash's music? Yes? Yeah? I never got it myself. I, I thought, the guy made a lot of money and he doesn't always sing on tune. How did that happen? You know, I, Lois didn't understand that. She loved Johnny Cash and loved his music. I said, honey, he, he doesn't sing on tune all the time. And it doesn't seem like a person should be able to become a millionaire who can't sing on tune unless they make their millions not singing but doing something else. And she just thought I was an idiot from the north. And <clears throat> he came to our town one day in our, in our local fair. In Ohio, the fair is like huge. In some of those farm counties of Ohio, the fair is huge. And he, was, uh, he and June Carter Cash, his wife, came to the county fair. And my wife forced me to go. I mean, I took Lois. And uh, we all went. And then when I heard him sing, like immediately when he and his wife came on the stage, I go, okay, I get this. I never got it before, but the minute the guy got on the stage, I'm like, I get it. Because he and his wife had amazing personal charisma. They happened to be devout believers in Jesus, too. They've been, they came about knowing the Lord the rough way, but, but they had this amazing personal charisma. And I, and I got it. And he actually did sing on key, and, and who am I to judge anyway? And nobody buys my albums, you know, anyway, so that was interesting. But his wife was, like, full of life. She was just, like, jumping around, you know, and a person like that could never get overweight. She's just moving all the time. And I was speaking this weekend. I met a lady a lot like that. She was an uh, old lady. Can I say it like that without sounding irreverent? She was not young. She was quite old. And she was a sprightly little thing. And she had white hair down to her waist. And she's so full of life, jumping around everywhere, you know. I preached three times every time I'd look down there, and man, she's just full of life. And afterwards, she would come up to me and she would say, you know, Jesus is the happiest man ever in the whole world. And I said, that's right. He was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his fellows, above all of his companions, the book of Hebrews says. And so I'd, I'd get done preaching. She'd come up to me and she'd you know, Jesus was the happiest man ever. And I would say, yep, that's right. He was anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his all of his companions. That was a lot of fun. So I'm going to tell you some jokes today. thought it would be okay. If you don't like that, I mean, some of you might want to take notes on these. Because I, I know what you're like. You're like, that's lame. You won't laugh. And then you'll, you, then you'll go to the coffee house tomorrow and you'll tell everybody. Right? That's the way you are. And I understand that. So you might want to write this down. Now, if you don't like jokes in a pulpit, read your bulletin right now. This will be your bulletin reading time. And it just, it'll be over fast. They're dog stories. They're good ones. All right? Guy goes to the psychiatrist. He thinks he's a dog. And says to the psychiatrist, I got this problem. I feel like I'm a dog. Psychiatrist says, have a seat on the couch. We'll talk about it. He goes, I'm not allowed to sit on the couch. <laughs> yeah. That was a problem there. Another guy, he wanted a dog really bad. He said, he said I, I, I want a dog. So he started looking in a Craigslist. And he saw a talking dog, $10. He thought that was a pretty good deal. And so he called. You know, he called and he said, uh, hey, I'm calling about your talking dog. And they said, just a minute, we'll get, <laughs> we'll get him on the line here. And so he asked the dog where he lived. The dog told him. And he went over there and, and, to meet him. Guy comes to the door and he opens the door. He goes, I'm here to talk about your talking $10 talking dog. And he goes, well, you talk to him. And so the dog comes, hey, how you doing? Guy says, fine. I understand you're for sale for $10. He goes, that's right. He goes, 
Well, it seems like a pretty good deal for a talking dog. He goes, well, I got a lot of experience. You know, they found out I was a talking dog. The CIA hired me, and I've traveled all over the world, and I've done all kinds of undercover work, and I really kind of made a name for myself in that. And so after that, I was hired at the White House. Very few people know this, but I worked at the White House for a long time, so many years now that I've retired and uh, had a litter of my own. And he said, wow, he said to the guy, 10 bucks? He goes, yeah, that's because everything he just told you was a lie. So you didn't like that one. Let me tell you one more. <laughs> Maybe I should stick to the Bible, huh? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Hey, guy, guy's, uh, guy shows up at his buddy's house, and he says, let's go hunting for birds. And the guy says, for birds? He goes, there's bigger things to hunt. He goes, oh, let's hunt for birds. He, said, he had something up his sleeve. He goes, you got a new hunting dog, don't you? He goes, yeah. He goes, he's an amazing hunting dog. You won't believe him. He goes, yeah, well, I, I'll be impressed when I see this. So they go hunting. They got a boat, shoot a duck, goes down the water. The dog jumps out of the boat, walks on the water to get the bird. Just comes back, gets it back in the boat. And the guy says, what do you think of that? And the guy says, oh, it's a good dog. He goes, that's, all, that's it. Shoots another bird. The dog gets out of the boat, walks on the water, gets the bird, brings it back. And he goes, what do you think of that? He goes, well, like I said, it's remarkable. Nice dog. He goes, Tell me what you really think. And the guy goes, okay, I'm not here to criticize, but he can't swim, can he? <laughs> no. Some people are just impossible to impress. doesn't matter what you do. And over and over again, when we follow the stories of Jesus, there's a group that follows him around. They see everything he does, and nothing impresses them. We're in Matthew chapter 16 and verses 1 through 4. We're going to go to verse 12 today because I'm done telling jokes. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came testing him and asked him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, because we jumped right into this, that doesn't sound like a very big deal. But imagine what they're saying. They're going to Jesus to test him. Now, these are Pharisees and Sadducees. We'll get to that later. And what do they say to him? We want a sign from heaven. Well, that's not a big deal, right? That almost seems like a compliment. Hey, you're Jesus. Can we see a sign? But you've got to understand the context here. Jesus has been going around doing good deeds, healing people, forgiving sinners, raising the dead, walking on water, making bread, making fish, casting out demons. And then they say, can we see a sign? Kind of like, your dog doesn't swim, does he? Like, what? It was an offensive thing. I mean, if you, if you heal people, cause blind people to see raise the dead, cast out demons, walk on water, make bread and fish, and somebody comes up to you after that and says, say, could I see a sign? It's like, what did you call all that other stuff that I was doing? You missed a whole lot of signs. These guys missed all the signs, and they kept saying, we want to see a sign. Now, what's interesting, too, is it wasn't the Pharisees, and it wasn't the Sadducees. It was the Pharisees with some Sadducees with them. Which may not seem like a big deal to you, but these guys did not get along. They did not agree. They were a long way apart from each other on opposite sides of the theological aisle. And that's to, that's to state it mildly. They hated each other. They were enemies. Sadducees were the theological liberals. They were the minority party. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They tended to be, though they were in a minority, they tended to be more prosperous and the, the, the Pharisees, they were in the majority, and they were the people who believed literal things. And so you have the theological conservatives over here that never talked with the theological liberals over here, except they agreed that they both hated Jesus and he was cutting in on their religious business. And so they come together, 
and they're throwing down on him. They're like, show us a sign. They're trying to publicly humiliate him. They're trying to get him to step in some kind of a trap. They are willfully ignorant of who he is. They're not ignorantly ignorant. They're willfully ignorant of who he is. They don't want to believe. They see the dog walking on water. They say, your dog can't swim. They don't want to believe. They made up their mind not to believe. So how is he going to answer them? Verse 1, the Pharisees, Sadducees came, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. What's Jesus going to do? He says that he answers them in a little proverb. He says, you guys are good at telling what the weather is going to be like. You can tell ahead of time if the weather is going to be nice tomorrow or if it's not going to be nice tomorrow. You're smart guys. But you have missed the forest for the trees. This is what it says in verse 2. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. What's that? How's that? Red at night? Yeah, you got it. You're smart as a Pharisee. In the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! You, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. I don't care if you have a Ph.D., you miss the most important thing. I don't care if you are the religious leader of all religious leaders, you miss the biggest thing. You can tell the weather and you don't know that God is here. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on in verse 4 and says, A wicked, adulterous generation seeks after a sign. In other words, it's not wrong for a person to say, Oh, I want to believe that God is God. That's not wrong. Oh, I wish that God would show himself to me. That's not wrong. The Lord, I believe, the man cries. We're going to get to that in chapter 17. He's going to say, Lord, I believe. He's going to cry, and he's going to cry out and with tears. He's going to say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's okay. That's okay. That kind of thing. God, show yourself to me. That's okay. But when God has shown himself and done all these miracles over and over again, and you're willfully dug in and you don't want to believe, he says, that's a wicked and adulterous generation. Can you imagine calling Pharisees adulterous? That was like super in your face. Adulterous. Imagine that. Very brave. And then he says, you're not going to have another sign. A wicked, adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. This he was saying, referring to his own death and resurrection, and this isn't the first time that he said it. They should have gotten the news the first time he said it, but they were willfully ignorant, willfully blind to who he was. This is a sad deal. People that, imagine this, Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, come to earth doing miracles in front of you, and you're like, I'm not impressed. The Morse the cat response, you know, you're not impressing me at all. You're walking on water because you can't swim. Well, these guys were idiots. These guys were morons. They were spiritually, and he called, Jesus called them a different name, hypocrites. He said they're hypocrites. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's another section here, and it goes from chapter 16, verse 5, to verse 12. Let's read that together. It's going to change the scenery. So here we, here we have just a little short thing where Pharisees and Sadducees come together to challenge Jesus. They get together, though they're enemies, to challenge Jesus. And Jesus, by the way, at the end, what does Jesus do? He just walks. He just walks off. It, it, that's a, that's a, that's a uh, symbolic judgment. You notice, he left them and departed, verse 4. He left them and departed. 
So when Jesus gets done telling the Pharisees, the only sign you're going to have is a sign of the prophet Jonah, he just turns and he leaves them. And that is significant there. He didn't continue the dialogue. He didn't really, he didn't really especially emphasize giving them another chance because they were just, they just, just willful blindness going on. Now they, get, they go back across. You understand they'd been away for a while. He'd been in Tyre and Sidon. He'd made his way across the Jordan down the east coast of Galilee, and he'd fed the Gentile thousands there. And then he came across this area, and the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are waiting immediately. And then he goes back again. And when he goes back, what happens is the guys forget to pack the lunch. And now, if you've ever been with somebody and they're kind of preoccupied, you know they're not really listening. Like, a lot of times when I'm talking, that's what I notice about you. No, no I'm, I'm, I'm kidding about that. They're preoccupied, and, and you're like, you're not listening, and then they say what you said. But it's like, yeah, you know what I said, but you don't know what I said. And I, I imagine that in the boat that day, that's what's going on. There's no reference to the dialogue in the boat. It's like they cross the sea, but when they get to the other side, one of the guys goes, oh, man, I forgot my lunch. I forgot the bread. And Jesus is like, he's on another planet. And he says, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. He's still thinking about that exchange with the Sadducees and with the Pharisees. That's what's on his mind. They're thinking about lunch. My brother-in-law Jim is this way. We go to the Bible conference. We used to go to the Bible conference in Grand Rapids every year. It was a great Bible conference. They had speakers from all over the nation, and we were just young guys, and we would get our book allowance money, and we would we'd get in the same car. We would share a motel six cheap hotel room and we would pinch our pennies we would go to the conference sessions and then in the afternoon we would go to the bookstores and we would buy books for our libraries based on what we were going to preach the next year and so we loved doing that it was just a wonderful wonderful thing and then we would always save enough money to have one meal out at a little bit nicer restaurant in the evening and my brother-in-law would inevitably, we would be there, and they would have somebody just preaching to beat the band, you know. And we would be there, and we would always be, inevitably, we would be like, like taking notes, and the guy would be preaching, and Jim would have a real thoughtful look on his face, and I noticed that he was also very engaged, you know. And then he would look over at me, and he'd go, where are we going to eat? <laughs> he and I both need to get on the same health plan right now. But anyway, nonetheless, I, I see the disciples are kind of, they're thinking about the food. Jesus is not thinking about the food. He's still thinking about that exchange with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they're going, hey, somebody forgot the food. And as a result of that, they kind of don't get what he's saying because they're kind of locked in the temporal, and he's thinking on spirit, in spiritual terms. They're kind of blinded by the temporal. We don't want to overdo this, but it's, it's, clear, it's clear there. It's like these are guys you have to remember. And Jesus is going to say this to them. Matter of fact, in one of the other Gospels, it's kind of humorous the way it it comes out. He goes, okay, remember the feeding of the 5,000? That would be the Jewish feeding, remember? And he goes, and how many baskets were left over? And he makes them answer. Twelve. Yeah. And, he goes, and, and he's like, now, and do you remember the Gentile feeding? And how many big, large baskets were left over? You guys, that's kind of lame. He sounded kind of like Lutherans or Methodists or Presbyterians. like, Baptist people should be sharper than this. Let's work on this a little bit. Yeah, it was 12 and 7. Read them, guys. You know, get this down. Uh, hats off to the Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Methodists who are present and love Jesus here today. Anyway, so, so he, so he um, and, uh, asked him the question. He says, uh, did, you guys, did you guys, were you there when I made bread for thousands of people? And they're like, yeah, 
And how many baskets left over? Twelve. Were you there when I made bread for thousands of more people, the Gentiles? Yes. And how many huge baskets were left over? Seven. You can almost imagine me going, and you remember the night when you guys were crying like girls and I walked out to you on the water? You remember that? I'm offending everybody today. Before I'm done, I'm going to get everybody here today. See, if you really love Jesus, you know, yeah, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. That's the Bible says that, yeah. So, wow, what, what happened today? Did you guys, like, stay up late last night or something? Is it me? Is it, must be me. Anyway, so here's the interesting thing. He says to them, he's referring repeatedly to the things that he did. Folks, listen, if you read the Bible carefully, here's what you see in these uh, stories. Jesus expected these experiences to make these disciples, his followers, people of spiritual insight, of faith, of robust faith. He did these things not just to feed people. He did these things because he was constantly teaching. His disciples were constantly with him, and he was constantly going, did you see that? Because he's conscious that he's soon going to die, and he's soon going to rise again, and he's soon going to go back to heaven, and he's going to turn the entire church of Jesus Christ over to these guys. And so he's trying to get them to be faithful disciples and to believe. He doesn't want them to be infected by the religious atmosphere of the day. He doesn't want them to be infected by the Pharisees and they're like adding laws to God's laws. And he doesn't want them to be infected by the Sadducees who are people who don't really believe anything. He wants them to be his followers who have eyes of faith, who believe, and he wants them to remember all the things that he did, and he wants them to have confidence that he's not done doing miraculous things because it's going to take a series of miracles for them to do what's ahead of them. So he wants them to be people of faith, so he's thinking about that while they're thinking about their lunch. And he says, he quizzes them, did you notice that you guys remember? I mean, why are you guys worried about lunch? I'm in the boat. Why are you thinking about that? If I'm here, you know lunch is no problem. Do you remember how full you were when you fed the Jews? And you remember how full you were when you fed the Jews? I remember how many baskets you carried away. And that's what this story says. And then he warns them at the end of this little section. And he says to them, watch out beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Look out for that. Now, Jesus doesn't warn people about things that aren't dangerous. So you've got to track with me on this. Jesus has got recruited these disciples. They are his legitimate followers. They have been through a lot with him. He's going to die and rise again. And they are in danger of getting sucked into going, adding to or taking away from the truth. The Pharisees added to the truth, and by adding to the truth, that wasn't truth anymore. When we add to the truth, it's no longer the truth. When we take away from the truth, it's no longer the truth. That's why in our church we often talk about balance. The word itself isn't a biblical word. The idea is very much biblical. The idea is teach everything the Bible teaches Teach it as much as the Bible teaches it. Don't teach it more. Don't teach it less. Don't take away from it. And don't add to it. It doesn't work. It isn't right to add to the Bible. Pharisees are like, we want to be safe. We're going to add to the Bible. We're learning this over my lifetime. In my lifetime, I'm learning, don't add to the Bible. We call this the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need to add to the Bible. Jesus warns against this. He says, don't get in with a party of hypocrites that adds to the Bible. 
Are you here on this morning? This is what he says to his followers. I want you to believe who I am and don't add to the Bible. Then about the Sadducees, don't take away from the Bible either. Don't, don't subtract from the Bible. Don't get into unbelief where you're not believing the miracles and so forth. Don't be in either of these parties. Don't be affected by them. Don't be infected by them. So it's obviously a real possibility that a person could easily be a follower of Jesus but be affected by the spiritual blindness that's around them. And this is the warning that he gives. So now let's just read it, what I just told you the story. But let's read it so that you get these very words in your mind for this morning. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000, and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. You say, let's think about this. Let's think about implications for us. It's not a lot different. It's not hard to apply. Like we're surrounded every day by people who are religious, but they really, really don't have a belief in Jesus. We're surrounded every day by people who are not Christian religious, so they have made some kind of pagan religion, but they overlook the main thing. They may see flowers, they may rejoice when they have the birth of a baby, they might like a good, well-cooked steak, but they might love the sunset, the sunrise, but they've missed the one who created the baby, who made the sunrise, who, they miss that. It's like they see things, but they don't see the thing, the one behind the things. So the Bible says about a person like that, a person who, they see life, and they eat bread, and they have babies, And they smell flowers, but they're clueless about where they came from. That person is spiritually blind. And some of those spiritually blind people are religious, real, real religious. And some are not real, real religious. They're kind of modernists. Some are really, really smart with a Ph.D., but they're dumb, so dumb they're going to go to hell. They're going to go to hell with a head full of knowledge and everybody's going to look up to them and they're going to own homes on both sides of the country and everybody's going to look up to them because they have a nice wardrobe or they're articulate, but they don't know the one thing that if you don't know it, you don't go to heaven when you die. So this is the simple thing. Jesus says, don't ever get into that. It'd be great just to be a common, common man who knows that Jesus is Jesus and doesn't know much else than to know everything like even how the weather works, but you don't know who Jesus is. I had a friend, guy that got saved. He is, this isn't the recommended program, but there was a girl, she worked at a bank, Christian girl, worked at a bank, and there was a man, an older man that worked at the bank, and he would notice this girl, that she was a really pretty girl, that she was a really good Christian girl, and he, she noticed that he hung around her a lot, asked her a lot of questions, started kind of asking her personal questions, and then she finally discovered why. He had a son her age, and his son was way off of the rails. He's into drinking, he's into partying. And this guy, who was not a believer, 
noticed this girl who was a believer and just thought, man, I would love it if my son would be interested in this girl. So he introduced the two of them. And the girl said, you know, I'm a believer and you're not a believer, not even... Not only is he just not a believer, but he was an immoral unbeliever. He was a guy that was given a drunkenness of partying. Not, it wasn't good. You know, it was just not the kind of boy that you want your daughter to hook up with, right? But the girl said this. She said, well, I'll, I'll, um, I won't go out with you, but you can, we can go to church together if you want to. Again, this, this is not something anybody ever recommends, but it's the way it worked. And, they, and she decided, she, she'd heard me. Uh, at a funeral, and she thought maybe this guy would connect with me. And so she brought him to our church. And there they would sit, about three-quarters of the way back on the right, week after week. There she sat. And, you know, as a pastor, you're like, this is probably not good. That guy's not a believer, and that girl is a believer. And if she starts to spark with him, and she gets emotionally attached to him, and he's an unbeliever, and the Bible says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That is not a good idea. So week after week, he listens, and I'm like, yeah, I know this guy. He, like, wants the girls, so he's going to sit in church. He's going to play the game. He's going to sing the songs. He's going to act like he's interested, and you know how that's going to work. The minute that they get married, he's going to go AWOL, and he's going to be watching fantasy football on Sunday instead of going to church, and she's going to be crying the blues about that. And uh, and one Sunday, I I preached, and there's a story embedded in that. I've told it before, so I won't tell it again, but... He got a hold of me the next day, and he wanted to meet. And he came to know the Lord. And it was over a series of times. We met together a lot. And one day on the way to work, he was listening to a Christian radio station on the way to work, and he was overwhelmed with God's love for him. And he pulled his car over the side of the road, and he got saved to save. Jeff Bays is his name. He got really in that school, isn't it? He got really, it's like, if you're going to clap because the guy got saved, just go ahead and clap. That's kind of exciting. It's not about me. That's about Jesus. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, if he was here today, you'd even be more excited. He's just a great young guy. He's on fire for the Lord. Um, and oh, I, I'm kind of tempted to go on and tell about that, but I have a deadline. I'm trying to meet people. Pay me if I quit early, you know. No, I'm just kidding. It's an idea, though. If you guys want to take a little collection, something. Um, no, so he got saved, and he was so beautifully converted and so loved the Lord. And then they, they did marry. I, I performed the wedding, and he and his wife Nancy really love the Lord, and they have a beautiful family, and the guy's a devout Christian guy. He wrote me this week, and uh, that was pretty cool. I, I got another note from Tim Hybe last night, and this was like way 30 years ago. This boy, I knew he raised his hand when I preached, but he didn't come forward like I asked him to. So I went out in the, dry, in the parking lot of the church, and I said, well, you raised your hand. Are you sure you don't want to talk? And he got saved out in the parking lot. And I forgot about that until years. And he, he said, do you remember? You chased me out in the parking lot. I'm like, I remember that. Yeah, you chased me out of the parking lot. He wrote me last night. So this guy, Jeff, he wrote me this week, and he said, do you have a copy of that message, Eternity Vision? And I said, I remember that message, but we don't have a audio of that it's like 12 years ago and i uh, sent him a message that tom Harmon preached here on eternity which was like a lot better than the one i preached and he thanked me for that and then i found the notes to eternity vision and i looked over those notes and i sent it to him he wrote me back this this beautiful note i'll read it to you 
But in the message, one of the things I said is, ever played, you ever play, don't admit this openly, but if you've ever played video games, you know that if you're playing a video game, some of these video games, you're going through this like journey, and you, you get to a certain place, and you get special powers. And all of a sudden, you're like, you're invisible. Or you have special powers. Well, eternity vision is like another way for faith, another way to say faith. Faith is like eternity vision. When you, when you have faith, it's like, you have special power to see what you couldn't see before. And eternity vision is faith. It's like you see what other people don't see. Get it? You see what other... It's there, but now you can see it because all of a sudden you were given spiritual glasses. Eternity vision. Instead of just temporal vision, you got eternity vision. That's faith. Faith is eternity vision. And it's really helpful to have eternity vision. When you come to parts in your life, like for instance, when you come to heartache in your life, when you come to tragedy in your life, you don't want to just see this life. You want to know that there is another life. You don't want to just see the pain you just went through and then that's the end of things. You want to know that there is a God in heaven who will one day comfort you for eternity. You want to have faith to believe that. You want to have vision to believe that. That's eternity vision. That's faith. And He can give you that when you go through the dark night of the soul, when the saddest things have happened to you. Then you need to look long and far. You need to put on the glass. Don't be infected by the people around you who don't believe. Be a believer then. When you're trying to decide what to do with your money, you've got to have eternity vision. When you're trying to decide about time, you look in a mirror and you notice that you can't see yourself anymore without your glasses or you're wrinkly or you're getting, you know, not so pretty as you used to be. It's a good reminder the outward man is wasting away, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. But I don't see that look in the mirror. I see that if I have eternity vision. If I have faith, I see that. And I'm different. And I'm stronger. And I'm more faithful. Even if I lose a loved one. Even if I lose a job. Even if I'm getting old. Even if I have cancer. If I have eternity vision. I can see there is a God. There's a time we're going to sing in the presence of Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. But I can't even see that unless I have faith. Unless I get eternity vision. So I want eternity vision. And this is the thing that Jesus was saying to his followers. I don't want you to be all willfully blind like everybody else around you. Even the smart religious people. I want you to be people who have spiritual insight, eternity vision. And so Jeff wrote me this. I found uh, the notes and sent them to him. He wrote this back and it made me feel happy. He said, I said, Jeff, you must have, ha- you must have great memory <laughs> to remember that message so, so long ago. And he wrote back and he said, actually, my memory is poor, but it was a memorable message because the Spirit brought it to my mind the other day. When I was listening to John Piper in a discussion on stewardship, he made the comment, use what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose, paraphrasing a part of Matthew 6. And it made me think of living with eternity vision. And here's what he said. That message stuck with me all these years. I can still hear those words echoing through the sanctuary. And I remember feeling like lightning had struck my soul. (laughs) That made me feel happy when I read that. So I have a prayer for you today. May lightning strike your soul with eternity vision right here and right now. And when that happens, you're going to witness. And when that happens, you're going to handle your money the way God wants you to handle your money. And when that happens, you're going to be able to resist temptation because you have eternity vision. May lightning strike your soul with eternity vision. 
And whatever you're going through, it won't matter what other... You're going to be different than all the people around you. Even the smart, religious, moneyed people around you. Because people with eternity vision are that way. May lightning strike your soul and do that for you. Stand with me. And I want to send you on your way with a benediction. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible...